Good afternoon and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine's Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Sprinkle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today is Earth Day, and what better way to celebrate Earth Day than to explore the realm of one of the Earth's most interesting species, seaweed. Seaweed has seen a surge in interest in Maine in the last few years, and though Maine has a long heritage of using seaweed in multiple ways, it seems that now a growing number of people, from consumers to nutrition experts, from harvesters to farmers, from restoration ecologists to beauticians, they're all paying attention to seaweed. And Maine finds itself at the center of this growing seaweed frenzy. This is all especially timely because this week, just in time for Earth Day, Maine is celebrating Maine Seaweed Week, which is multiple days full of activities and opportunities to taste and learn about this incredible seafood. We'll give you details about Maine Seaweed Week later in the show, but first, to help us make sense of the seaweed story, I'd like to introduce our radio production assistant for today's episode of Coastal Conversations, Ellie White. Ellie is a senior at College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, where she's been studying storytelling, audio production, and human ecology, and welcome to the show, Ellie. Hello, Natalie. Thank you for having me on the show. It's great to have you. I'm excited for what we're about to share with our listeners today. Um, so thank you so much for all of the interviews that you have conducted for the show today, for your vision for today's show, because you get the credit for coming up with the idea and um, the implementation and also all your audio production work that you did to bring the world of Maine seaweed to our listeners once again here on Coastal Conversations. So thank you. Um, so Ellie, can you tell us a little bit about how you, a college student from the UK studying in Maine, got into Maine seaweed scene? And tell us also a little bit about what our show is going to be doing today. Yeah, so I first imagined today's coastal conversation in my tiny apartment in London. I was feeling really landlocked and kind of suffocated by the city and Believe it or not, I even started missing the smell of low tide. And so during my time in London, I was gifted the book, The Seaweed Chronicles, um, which is a story of these invisible underwater worlds and the folks that tend to this garden of unparalleled ecological value. I was surprised to discover that most of us can't even get through a day without meeting seaweeds in disguised and processed forms such as toothpaste and puddings, pie fillings and other soft foods, even in makeup soaps and dog and cat foods and cattle feed and farm fertilizers. I, I was just blown away. 
But today's episode is less about these distant global markets for seaweed and more about the local harvesters and producers who are bringing seaweed directly into our lives and onto our tables. There's a really rich culinary history here in Maine in terms of foraging and using these locally foraged seaweeds in food, be it blancmange, which is like a custard pudding, or in bread or soup, and even medicine. And it's a way of life that goes back thousands of years along this coast from indigenous Penobscot harvesters who made dulse gels to treat heart problems, or even the popularity of Irish moss recipes in colonial Maine. And so in today's episode, we want to celebrate this maritime heritage on the coast of Maine. And we'll be hearing from Jacqueline Robidoux and Josh Rogers, people who helped organise this year's Seaweed Week, a food and drink festival celebrating Maine's kelp harvest, which starts today on the 22nd of April and continues until May 1st. First, I want you to join Jacqueline and I on a walk along the shore path of Bar Harbour. Jacqueline's enthusiasm for seaweed is completely infectious. As a member of the Maine Sea Grant Marine Extension Team, she focuses on the development of the seaweed sector in Maine, with an emphasis on sustainable production, post-harvest processing and product development. Her work provides support for coastal communities through outreach education, technology transfer programs, and by coordinating stakeholders around Maine seaweed resources. Jacqueline's background in technical seaweed aquaculture research helps to link ongoing applied research with industry capacity and opportunities and to really foster a sustainable working waterfront along Maine's coast. So here we are walking along the shore path of Bar Harbor. Seaweed has a bit of an identity crisis generally because we call it like 500 different things. Kelp and seaweed and algae. And so parsing through like what all those mean can be really difficult. Also, we have seaweeds that are called things like Irish moss, which makes it sound like a land plant. Um, so it's that's something that if people are interested in learning more about seaweed, I always encourage people to like familiarize themselves with what the seaweeds are. Um, because there's a lot of name confusion. <laughs> Can you clarify some of the name mm -hmm. confusion? Seaweeds, well, I guess I'll start at the, the top of the list. So algae is the, the umbrella term that covers both microalgae, which is the single-celled organism, something like a spirulina, um, and macroalgae, which is things that you can see. Uh, seaweeds is typically a term that's synonymous with macroalgae, so things that typically live in the ocean, you can see them, that's a seaweed. Underneath that, if we think about like the little seaweed chart, you have three classifications of seaweed, so the reds, the browns, and the greens, and those are based on their different pigments. Um, something like a kelp is a brown algae. So, you know, all kelps are seaweeds, but not all seaweeds are kelps. It's like a square and a rectangle kind of situation. 
um, or a hot dog and a sausage, however you want to break that down. Um, and so under each of those red, browns, and greens, there are different types of seaweeds that fall into the different categories. Uh, and just as a reference point, Maine has about 200 species of seaweeds there. So the, the ones that are most recognizable in each of those categories, so for the browns would be like, I guess the brown algae are well known for the canopy forming habitat type of seaweed. So stuff like kelp and rockweed are some of the brown species that people are familiar with. Um, for the reds, the reds are kind of more ancient, a little bit more cryptic, typically below the surface of the water. So they'll either be intertidal or subtidal. Um, and the ones that you might recognize there are stuff like Irish moss, or nori or dulse. Um, and then the, the green algae are the closest relatives to plants, although seaweeds are not plants, I should clarify that, they're very different. Um, so the, the green algae that people are probably the most familiar with is sea lettuce, which is the one, I mean, it's, it's very green. So, <laughs> and you'll see that typically in areas of either low salinity or high nutrients. It actually can tell you quite a lot about what's going on with the water and the water conditions in an area. So those are the, yeah, that's a breakdown of some of the common ones. <laughs> You know, Maine has a really long history of seaweed industries in the state. So we have a wild harvest industry that's been, you know, commercially happening for 50 years at this point for both rockweed and the sea vegetables. So more of like those, those edible ones that you would associate with the kelp or dulse. Um, so there's that happens pretty much, you know, all over the state. And then this new farming industry kind of came about probably a decade ago. Um, we started with a few farms in Casco Bay, primarily farming kelp, uh, and now that's expanded for, you know, further down the coast, so areas in the mid-coast, areas down east, and people are really interested in that as an opportunity for both new products as well as supplementing some of the, the edible sea vegetables that we've had for a really long time. So we have about 30 commercial farms um, in the state and that you know a lot of the farmers that are in operation are coming from marine backgrounds so whether they be lobstermen or farm oysters um, there's a lot of it's really well integrated with the other types of marine resource users that are already out there. Um, it also happens in the winter which is I think something always worth pointing out that this is a winter crop um, so a lot of people don't get eyes on it in the same way they might with a lobster boat or oysters um, but it is out there it's just not out there and it's also under the water so <laughs> there's that um, so it's not as visible I think to people as, and as front of mind um, in the in the classic seaweed sense it's a little bit like under the surface you know um, but we've seen you know basically in the past 10 years we've seen it blossom um, where we were 10 years ago and where we are now is a very different place and it's really cool sometimes I have to step back and think about that you know a decade is a pretty short time to develop a whole new farming industry and we've gone from a few experimental farms to now having commercial farms like Maine being a real leader in the in the domestic farming space for seaweed.
You know, most of the seaweed that's coming out of Maine goes into those consumer packaged goods. So the stuff that's farmed, at least, is going into those consumer packaged goods that are like shelf stable, ready for people to eat. The, you know, the recipe development has already been done. They taste good. You don't have to worry about, um, you know, messing up a recipe or anything. So with that, I, those go all over the United States. And we've seen partnerships coming out of Maine with different food chains and different chefs like it with more of a national and international scope um, so I, I think there's you know that that's those boats are both rising <laughs> if you will um, yeah but definitely in the beginning very local and now as some of as we've got it into those shelf stable forms and more of that like packaged goods and value-added products getting a bit further out because it can't, right? Like raw seaweed only makes it so far. <laughs> We've seen the past few years be really transformative for the seaweed industry. And a big reason for that is that product development space and that like value-added product space and having some of the support systems, you know, like the farmers are a piece, but they definitely don't exist without the nurseries and the processing and the marketing and the distribution that happens outside of that. Personally, I think seaweed is so cool, obviously, but where there's such cool opportunities is because most people have not interacted with seaweed, or if they have, they don't even know that they've been eating it or consuming it in products for a really long time. So like elsewhere in the world, the the culture around seaweed is a lot different and we're getting the opportunity to kind of build that here in the United States, which is, you know, it's a, it's really, really neat and it, it opens so many doors and possibilities. So in terms of like culinary opportunities, like we've had uses for seaweed, historically drying out seaweed and eating it in chips or using it in, um, you know, like soups is, is a good example. The traditional New England clam bake uses rockweed dug in, you know, into a pit to steam the, the clams and the lobsters. So I think those are two examples that come to mind of, of ways that people have traditionally eaten it. And now what we're seeing with some of the new farming activity is like new product innovation and product development and seaweed going in foods that it might never have been in before. So it makes it really accessible whether you're like a home cook who's looking to add seaweed into your lasagna recipe or you're like, I don't know about this seaweed thing, but you can find like a seaweed sauce or a seaweed salsa or a seaweed salad somewhere. So, um, you know, I, I think it's neat because it's it can it fits into different realms for different types of eaters, um, which is kind of cool. <laughs> Um, I took a amazing seaweed class at UNH with a, a few different professors, but one professor that I worked with really closely was Chris Nefis working on some red algae stuff. Um, and I remember one of the first foraging classes that we were doing, I was like a very new to the seaweed world at this point, still working on identifying it. Um, and we're walking the beach and he's like, this is edible. and like started eating it and encouraged me to take some home and bake it uh, at the time I was in college so like healthy good food that was free on the ground um, was 
you know, the, the pinnacle of everyone's college experience. And so taking that home and like getting to experiment with seaweed in my kitchen, my roommates were very freaked out. Um, but that was kind of like one of those moments where I had like an aha, you know, oh my gosh, this is edible. It's there. We are overlooking it, like walking on top of it. And there's this whole world of seaweed that does all these great things and has all these uses that I certainly did not know about. And I was like, we got to share this with the world. Like people need to know that you can eat this stuff. <laughs> Maybe not like pick it up off under from underneath your feet, but yeah. <laughs> uh, with the first few recipes that you tried, mm -hmm. what were some of the things that you cooked? Uh, Low-hanging fruit would definitely be like a lightly toasted seaweed chip. So I was collecting nori species, which are like a red. That's actually what's in like a sushi roll. That's like the flat seaweed that people associate with sushi. Um, so it has that very distinctive taste. It's very like savory, very umami. So if you toast it um, with a little bit of sesame seed oil and a little bit of salt, because I'm I like salt. Seaweeds have their own salt, so go light on it. Um, but that was one. Um, a few other ones were, I really like making um, soups. So like pho is one of my favorite recipes to make. Um, and so experimenting with how that changes it or also miso soups, you know, if you're trying to do a vegan or vegetarian version that doesn't use some of the traditional components like using dried kelp is a great option. Um, so yeah, those are some of like the early experiments that I subjected people to eating in addition to just myself. Um, <laughs> I think there's also like, I am fascinated by the ways that other cultures have used seaweed. And so t trying to draw on that and thinking like, what seaweeds do we have here that replicate those or have similar properties? So, you know, like uh, wakame is something that people are probably familiar with through miso soup. And so we have species here like Alaria, um, which is winged kelp um, that has similar properties. It has like that nutty, delicate flavor. So what, you know, I always look for where has seaweed been used elsewhere and how can you kind of like tailor it to be like a little, you know, a little main flair on that. Important to keep in mind that different seaweeds contain different compounds. So similar to vegetables, what you get from a carrot is not what you get from an onion, is not what you get from a broccoli, um, and seaweed is the same. So it kind of you know speaks to the importance of eating or tr experimenting with different seaweeds for their different nutritional properties. Um, something like nori, which you eat in a sushi roll, is going to be really high in protein. Something like dulse, which you can like snack on and is super tasty and delicious, um, is going to be really high in omega-3s. Uh, kelp is really well known for iodine. And so for people who have iodine deficiencies, that's kind of a reason to eat it. There's different compounds in each and for, I guess, another, another thing to keep in mind is that seaweed is concentrating like all of these marine nutrients super, super effectively. You know, it doesn't have like roots and shoots and stems, like the whole seaweed, the whole body essentially of the seaweed is absorbing things pretty much like highly efficiently and all over. 
So what you end up with is a really concentrated amount of that, um, which is why, you know, like anything, um, you, when you eat seaweed, it's super beneficial. You don't actually need a lot to get those nutrients and to get that nutritional value. Um, you know, small quantities go a long way with seaweed. I also don't want to say you don't need none because you definitely need to eat seaweed. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Seaweeds also contain different types of salts too, so I think that's important to keep in mind. Like I think people look at seafood and they're like, oh, it's so salty. Um, but the types of compounds in seaweed and the salts are very unique, so they're not always just table salt type salts. Um, you know, whether that's like potassium salts or sugar kelp, if you ever dry it out, there's a reason why it's called sugar kelp. It produces a special type of sugar, um, mannitol, which is what would be like the white powderiness on the surface if you ever get a dried piece um, so that and that's used in medical applications like for yeah a tons tons of different cool stuff as like a vasodilator I'm not I'm not a doctor so I could have just said that wrong but that's you know like there's there's different applications and that's like the the light sweetness that you get so it's interesting because all of these the tastes are similar to some of the plant compounds that we eat all the time things like you know like the sugar and all of that stuff but they're different in the sense that there's like a little bit something like lighter off frequently about them I mean it's like less processed usually um, and yeah they're a little more gentle I find if that makes sense <laughs> yeah Gentle taste. Yeah, just yeah. A, yeah, like it's like a fresh sea breeze where you know it's there. It's ephemeral, I guess you could say. Yeah. Oh, Anyone who's eaten seaweed snacks would, I, I feel like they would feel me on this one. You know, like you have one and it's like a chip because then you're they're like maybe mildly addictive or at least just a theory that I have. So. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations today on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. Today, our show is all about seaweed, and that was seaweed expert Jacqueline Robidoux from Maine Sea Grant, who works to help establish and grow the seaweed sector in Maine. Jacqueline was interviewed by Ellie White, our radio production assistant for today's show. If you want to learn more about the seaweed sector, catch a previous episode of Coastal Conversation that was produced with radio production assistants back then, Ella Keegan, and that show was called The History and Future of Maine's Seaweed Industry. That episode aired on January 22nd, 2021, and you can check it out via the archives at weru.org. Okay, let's get back to today's show and our seaweed stories today. Also, a quick note to our listeners that our show today was pre-recorded, and so we won't be taking any calls. Ellie, you really took the lead on developing the show today, and I'm so grateful, and the stories you've captured have been so informative and just fun. I love taking a walk with you on the Bar Harbor shore. Um, so tell us what's coming next. Next, we're hearing from Josh Rogers, founder of, of Heritage Seaweed, a store devoted to all things seaweed, and it's housed in this really quaint two-story red brick building in Portland. When I visited the store back in March, I was like a child in a sweet shop, excitedly grabbing Josh's cup of sea teas, Planet Botanical seaweed soap, and Atlantic Holdfast kelp soup mix. 
And then I found the gorgeous selection of home goods, cookbooks, art and apparel. And it really felt a little dangerous for someone newly obsessed with seaweed. But anyway, here's Josh explaining how his seemingly weird love of dulse as a child transformed into a sustainable business, shining a light on the main growers, harvesters and craftspeople. I was a kid um, when I got my first taste of seaweed. My great grandparents were from Canada, just over the border um, from Maine, grew up on the coast, and then emigrated to the United States. And so they had this real love of dulse, which is something that's harvested in the Gulf of Maine. And it was a little bit peculiar when I was a kid. Most of my friends did not know anything about it. It was seen as something very weird, but to my family it was super special. And we would always get it when we went up to Canada. And then we kind of found that it was something we could get around here in Maine too, in specialty shops like health food stores and things. And so I just had this love of dulse. And, and then I was living in New York City, grew up in Maine, lived in New York City for about 12 years, and I just was missing the ocean and missing that smell and just that connection with the waves and the water and the tide. And so, right, started ordering some wild harvested seaweed from Maine and exploring that. And then one day I was just drinking some green tea and I realized that it smelled and tasted almost exactly like kelp and just thought, oh, seaweed tea, that, that must be a thing. And I Googled it and it just didn't exist. And so I just thought, wow, you know, someone should make this. And so I made it partly for myself um, because I wanted that connection. Like you were saying, you were in England and just kind of missing, missing the ocean in London. And I wanted to be able to sit at my desk at work in Manhattan and make a cup of tea and like be transported um, to, you know, a beach in Maine. And that, that was kind of one of my first, you know, reasons why I made this. And of course, later I found, I found out just through talking to people, um, seaweed tea has always existed. And of course it has, um, it's been a folk kind of, um, remedy and medicine and, and drink probably forever. Um, but again, like no one has really written that down as far as I, I can tell. And so, you know, obviously it's this thing that, that goes back, um, forever. So I came, I eventually moved back to Maine and kind of started really trying to make and sell the teas and that was doing pretty well. And I needed production space and then I found this um, store in Portland and thought, oh, I could make a whole store devoted to like local seaweed because it's such an exciting thing and people are so curious about it but there's nowhere to ask the questions and there's nowhere to go to see it and try it. And, um, and so I just literally wanted to put it on the map. Like you can find products in stores, um, but they're kind of mixed in with everything else. You don't, they don't jump out at you. People working there oftentimes don't know too much about it. Um, and so I wanted to make a space where I could answer questions and, people could kind of see everything and um and celebrate this 
all these people that I had met over the last couple of years making the tea, um, there's so many cool people in Maine that are doing interesting things with seaweed. And then eventually um, created Seaweed Week, which was kind of grew out of my professional background. And when I was in New York, I worked at Zagat, which was like a restaurant guidebook. And then I worked at Google doing dining content and restaurant uh, type, type um, destination content. And so had this foodie writing background and just realized that chefs are the rock stars of our day. And if chefs are doing something, then the general public will adopt it and um, just wanted to kind of make that connection. And so, yeah, came up with Seaweed Week and it was just amazing. You know, people were really into it and um, it was yeah, an amazing event and yeah it's 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 cool that it's now been going for four years mm -hmm. yeah. Josh would you mind describing I'm trying to think of how when you were first starting cup of sea I'm imagining bits of seaweed hanging in your bathroom and, and what was that process like can you kind of set a scene for us yeah it was a little bit difficult actually I'm kind of sourcing um, sourcing seaweed, obviously you could get, there was a couple species that it was pretty easy to find, um, you know, in the local health food stores, but, you know, I also wanted to work with Alaria and, um, sugar kelp and some other things and experiment with that. And so those at the time were a bit harder to find and, um, or at least I, w I found them harder to find. And so, yeah, I just remember, you know, meeting like a, a someone down on the docks in Portland and buying like a pound bag of some sort of kelp early on and, and just almost feeling like it was this illicit kind of deal down on the docks, you know. Um, but yeah, it was my, my kitchen was just had, you know, just a million different um, cups going with water boiling at different temperatures and different amounts of things and really trying to understand what the uh, what the um, uh, you know taste exact taste of each seaweed was um, and how they could blend together and um, it was not something that my family really loved a lot of like steamy seaweed uh, just all the time um, but it was it was totally fun and um, and then, but the the real thing was like testing it with the public. That was like where it actually became something um, that people wanted to drink. Um, I couldn't have done it just in my kitchen, but it was um, it was a crazy thing. And then when I first, when I really got going, then I was blending it in my kitchen, which was you know quickly became a nightmare because there's all you know you have to sanitize everything. My kitchen is just my kitchen home and so you have to sanitize everything properly um, you have to put the dogs away and you have to spend a couple hours blending and you know I had giant um, you know bowls and things like that and then eventually package it up and then I'd have to clean everything up so it would be like you know after the family went to bed it would be me until like 1 or 2 a.m. doing this and so that kind of precipitated like needing to move into a different space and and kind of upgrade my operations. 
and that really just got me back into what was happening with seaweed now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny you mentioning dulse. I read somewhere that dulse and lava were the gateway seaweeds, and then you get hooked. <laughs> For sure. I mean, I, I can't imagine anyone not enjoying dulse. It's just, it's salty, and it's, um, you know, it, it's got a lot of depth of flavor. It's chewy. It's a little bit sweet. It's kind of savory. It's everything that humans love, you know, it's like a chip that's good for you. Um, and I love, it's, it's, it's got such a wide range of uses, like it's great to, as a counterpoint to things, so, you know, maybe in a fruit salad, adding this, you know, real contrasting, salty, savory kind of thing. Um, or you can just double down and throw it in some chowder or whatever, you know, there's all, there's all these different things you can do with it. Um, I love nori or laver. Um, a lot of people know that one from, um, you know, sushi rolls and things like that. But we have um, an almost identical species here in the Gulf of Maine. Um, I love uh, wakame, or here in the Gulf of Maine we call it alaria. That's the local species. Uh, there's uh, alaria is also farmed here, which is great. We are also farming sugar kelp which is also really tasty. It's very similar to kombu, if anyone's ever had miso soup. Um, it's a very basic um, flavor, and kombu is, you know, one of the main ingredients, and is actually um, what gave us the word for this fifth taste. So there's sweet and sour, savory, bitter, and um, umami. And umami is essentially it's a little bit of, you know, a couple of different things, but um, n not a lot of foods have umami in any great, um, in any great um, magnitude, but they're some of our favorite foods. So like red meat, cheese, mushrooms, soy sauce, um, a few other things like that, and seaweed. And uh, Japanese uh, scientist discovered this in the early 1900s when he was eating miso soup. And he, was, and he just basically asked, why does this taste so good? And what is it that's special about it? And isolated this fifth flavor that we hadn't really thought about before, which is umami, and um, realized that it came from the seaweed. Uh, so yeah, it's just, it's something that um, People love that taste. Human beings love umami taste. Mm -hmm. How is the kind of gastronomic scene of Maine? How are they bringing yeah. it into into our restaurants? Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, Maine has this amazing dining scene. It's centered in Portland, but there there are really amazing restaurants all over. Um, it existed before I returned here, and people were doing cool things with seaweed. Um, way back, but it was not a huge thing until recent years where, you know, I think there just is this overall consciousness that's been raised all over um, the country and, and the world to some degree of how great seaweed is. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely being realized that it's something here in the Gulf of Maine and it's something that chefs can work with. Some chefs are, are super on board and they're excited about it and they've been working with it for years. Others are interested, but chefs are really busy 
and um, if the, you know, sometimes they don't always have time to really learn about something new. So it can be a challenge. You know, it's something where we're trying to capitalize on the interest that's already here in the food community, and then um, kind of find easy ways for um, people who maybe haven't worked with seaweed yet to get it onto their menus and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. But there, it runs a range really from, you know, high-end restaurants, main, main, main dishes, really composed artful plates, farm-to-table style um, menus to it's on pizza sometimes, it's, it's in some salads, smoothies, um, baked goods. I've seen um, um, a couple main places have it as a bagel topping and you know just about anything you can imagine definitely one of the big things i think really through seaweed week to some degree is um it's been added more and more to, as an ingredient um, in mixology so certain dish uh, certain drinks um in bars that are you know kind of these very interesting cocktails will have a seaweed component sometimes which is really cool mm. That's super exciting. Yeah. yeah. And speaking to this, um, I guess I'm excited with the Earth Day on the 22nd of April. Um, and this year's Earth Day theme being kind of investing in business and sustainable business and how Seaweed Week seems to really pioneer that here in connecting local harvesters and farmers um, with restaurants. Yeah, it's it's very it's a very cool kind of just synchronicity this year that we didn't plan, but um, we we really try to tie this festival to the seaweed harvest or near the end of the kelp harvest. Um, so a typical kelp farmer in Maine will seed their lines in December, and then it grows throughout the winter, and they harvest it usually in April, and and so. The idea for the festival is really this is a harvest festival, and it's the first harvest of the year. Um, you know, no other crop kind of grows over the winter out in the wild and you know, out in the elements anywhere in Maine. And so, yeah, it's the first harvest festival of the year, and seaweed farming is such a sustainable um, sort of food source when you think about even organic farming on land, which is great, and we absolutely need to do that. Um, but there's still, you know, some costs associated with it, which sometimes could be, perhaps that land could have been a forest or, or some other use. Um, you will often have to add fresh water to it, mm -hmm. which as we know is, fresh water is a, a big, um, uh, it's going to be a big issue in the coming decades. It, ar it already is in certain places in California and other places, but it's going to continue to be a resource that is in short supply. Um, and, you know, uh, other things like that. Whereas um, one of the cool things about kelp farming is um, kelp doesn't require any um, pesticides, doesn't require any, um, any special, you know, additives of any kind including water. You just seed the line and you let it go. And then you come back when it's full grown, essentially. 
and take it out of the water. Um, so it's this very, like it's a zero input crop effectively. And, and then while it's growing, it's doing all these amazing things for the water quality. It's uh, creating habitat for little crustaceans and other things. It's uh, reducing ocean acidification, which is great for shellfish because one of the things that's happening with the Gulf of Maine is it's becoming more acidic, which is problematic for things like mussels. And so we're also farming mussels and mussel shells, you know, become more weak the more acid the water is. And so if you put a seaweed farm next to a mussel farm, um, they've done some studies on this and the mussel shells would be stronger, mm -hmm. uh, which obviously is, you know, a lot better when you take them to market. Um, so, and it creates oxygen. It does all sorts of good, good things for the water. So it almost has like a net benefit. Um, and it's something that, you know, there are a lot of um, new folks getting into this, which is great. And then there's some traditional, um, like working waterfront people who have also started kelp farms, some lobstermen and oyster um, farmers and folks like that. So it's this really exciting, sustainable um, thing that we can all be proud of. And if we add it to our diets, you know, we're, we're just um, adding this super sustainable local thing, um, which is really the whole point of, you know, an event like Seaweed Week. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations today on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at weru.org with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. That was Josh Rogers of Heritage Seaweed, who was interviewed by Ellie White, our radio production assistant for today's show. Ellie is a senior at COA, College of the Atlantic, in Bar Harbor, where she's been studying storytelling, audio production, and human ecology. Today's show was pre-recorded, so we're, we aren't taking any calls today. So, Ellie, we've heard from Jacqueline Robidoux, we've heard from Josh Rogers at Heritage Seaweed, and I think you're going to tell us a little bit more about um, what's coming next. Yeah, thank you, Natalie. So, incredibly, Josh not only founded Cup of CTs and Heritage Seaweed, but he also created Seaweed Week, an annual food and drink festival celebrating Maine's kelp harvest. And I know at least in the UK when we have our harvest festivals in late August, early September, it really is a time for connecting with other people in the community and um, really finding a bit of rooting and sense of place. Um, and so I'm interested kind of to speak more to that celebration and, and what it means to celebrate um, both a heritage and um, and also kind of a vegetable that's going to be launching us into our future as well? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm not sure I've ever really thought it out quite so clearly, but but I'm really just struck by the idea that seaweed is invisible. So it grows under the water. Um, you pretty much don't see it, especially if it's farmed. You don't see it because it's out, you know, a couple hundred feet or whatever. You know out a bit and it's on ropes it's underneath the water you might see a couple buoys bobbing around and that's it and you likely probably wouldn't even notice anyone harvesting it or drying it 
So it's interesting, you know, um, Seaweed Week really is just trying to make that visible. It's with a lot of other crops, you know, our harvest festivals, you know, in the fall, you'll go to the orchard and, and do apple picking and there's cider, there's all sorts of events associated with it. Um, and, and so land-based agriculture has all this visibility built in. Um, seaweed is just something no one sees and, and, and it's out of sight and out of mind. And so, yeah, Seaweed Week is really trying to make that visible and make the farmers visible. Um, and yeah, part of that is, you know, in the, in the cultural imagination, everyone is just, I think, fascinated by this idea of a seaweed farm. And everyone, you know, one of their first questions, if they're really nerding out about seaweed uh, or seaweed week, they'll, they'll want to visit a farm. And I totally get that. Um, but it's, you know, it's not something easily done. And, um, you know, for a lot of this, for a lot of the year, there's nothing there. And then for a little while, it's all under the water. And then for a day, it's getting raised up and, and, and cut off and put into big bins and, and then dried. But so it's a real challenge to try to just, yeah, make it something that um, people can even have an image of in their minds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and particularly difficult during COVID as well, getting people out and meeting uh, those community members. For sure, and that's something a year or two back that um, Jacqueline Robidoux from Maine Sea Grant really uh, led the way on for Seaweed Week was introducing this um, kind of get kelp uh, model where farmers actually, um, the, the public could order from a farmer online uh, through our website and get a pound or two of fresh kelp, you know, delivered to them or, or from a pickup spot take it home and then we had some information cards where you could dry it or pickle it or um, or just use it in, in all these fresh recipes and as and it was just the coolest thing and we're and we're continuing that and building on it and it's um, something that I don't think I don't know of anything like that happening anywhere else in the world um, uh, you know another thing that people sometimes when they're kind of getting into seaweed they'll say, oh, I'd like fresh seaweed. or And it's just, it really hasn't been a thing throughout human history for the most part. Um, it's always been dried and dried seaweed is amazing. It's great. And that's one of the valuable things about seaweed is it, you know, all, all of its nutrition and everything is preserved. Its flavors are more concentrated. But there's this whole new world of like, wow, fr fresh seaweed is maybe a thing and now there's a couple companies in Maine that are freezing it and doing things like that but the idea of fresh seaweed from a farmer just like from you know you'd get fresh carrots from your local farmers market as far as I know it has never been a thing ever and it's just this really cool fascinating idea mm -hmm. yeah and also building a connection with the thing itself having such an intimacy with the seaweed yeah, that's for really sure. special. <laughs> I mean, I, I think the ocean in general, for, for even, you know, for even me and even, you know, mariners throughout history, um, I think has been this otherworldly thing and something to be feared often. It's, you know, it's often said that we know less about um, 
the ocean and, and the surface of the ocean than we do about the moon. And uh, oh, and I think it's it's true. And and people are still sometimes even if they're interested in seaweed, they're still hesitant and afraid because it's to us land-based creatures. It is from this other planet. Um, and so when you meet a farmer um, and you get something that was grown, you know, 10 miles from you, it's pretty cool. And it makes it more local and more human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely. I know it's fun with things like your teas, the cup of sea, and how much more um, accessible these initiatives make. Yeah. Um, that which, as you said, is usually invisible and held at an arm's length. Right. Yeah. And really, I mean, I think most people these days, the only times, or, or really their, their major image in their mind of seaweed, if it's, if it's not, you know, um, from a Japanese restaurant or something like that, in, in, in the world, it's, they've encountered it on a beach and it's dried and maybe it's rotting and it doesn't smell good. And it's, it's obviously this amazing habitat for bugs and um, birds love that and everything. But on the beach, people don't like it. And, you know, it's kind of ugly and it doesn't smell good. And so that's, the in, that's what they associate in their minds with seaweed. And it's like, well, yeah, I probably wouldn't like tomatoes either if all I knew about them was what I've encountered on the next to the dumpster in the alley in New York City when I used to live there. And it you know, it was July, and it was like, gross, who would, who would ever eat a tomato? Um, so it's the same kind of thing. People have a really limited, um, have had limited encounters with, with seaweed. I hate to admit it, but I was definitely one of those people with a bit of a negative image of seaweed before moving to the coast of Maine. And I feel really lucky to be here where we're really pioneering uh, the domestic seaweed market. And I'm even more excited to say that Josh and I caught up and I heard a little bit more about what's planned for Seaweed Week this year. Maine's top restaurants, bars and breweries and distilleries are bringing their passion and skills to our local sea vegetables. And we want to invite all of you to join them at the table. So here's Josh Rogers once again, giving us an update of what to expect for Seaweed Week 2020, starting today. April 22nd, and continuing until May 1st. Thanks. Seaweed Week 2022 is going to be fantastic, and I'm excited to share the details with you. I'll update you on participating restaurants and bars, some truly unique food and drink offerings, and special events we put together for our fourth annual festival. Okay, here are some of the highlights coming your way April 22nd through May 1st. More than 60 of Maine's top restaurants and bars are set to offer special menu items featuring local seaweed. These specials will run the gamut from pizza and beer to artfully composed farm-to-table plates and craft cocktails. In Portland, we've got 2022 James Beard Award finalists in the mix like Cheval and Woodford Food and Beverage. And just some of the other Portland highlights include Sir Lee, Eventide, Wayside Tavern, Maine Oyster Company, and Union at the Press Hotel. Statewide, a few notable eateries are Magnus on Water in Biddeford, Maine Beer Company, Freeport, Flux in Lisbon Falls, The Block Saloon in Thomaston, Nana June, Rockport, Hay Sailor, Searsport, Provender in Ellsworth, and Piquito Provisions in Bar Harbor. 
Mixologists are crafting signature drinks for the week, too. You can meet up for a kelp cocktail at Sonder and Dram in Lewiston, or in Portland at Blythe and Burroughs, Liquid Riot, Hunt and Alpine Club, and other night spots. And that's before we even talk about breweries. Each of our past events have featured one or two beers, but this year, it's a record. Five different seaweed beers have been brewed in honor of Seaweed Week. Fogtown in Ellsworth and Bar Harbor is bringing back Scupper. That's the Saison-style ale they make annually in collaboration with Main Coast Sea Vegetables, a seaweed retailer that recently celebrated its 50th birthday. Mast Landing, with tasting rooms in Freeport and Westbrook, will debut a Viet beer with lemongrass, lime, cayenne pepper, and seaweed from Akua, a maker of vegan kelp jerky and burgers. And our neighbor, Oxbow Brewing, sourced locally farmed sugar kelp from us here at Heritage Seaweed for a brand new farmhouse ale they're calling Saison Aquatic. All three of those beer releases will be available on tap and in cans, so you can grab a four-pack. In addition, the Liberal Cup in Hollowell and Portland's Urban Farm Fermentary will have their own seaweed beers on tap. But it's not just cocktails and beer. For a brief moment anyway, Maine will be the seaweed booze capital of the world. In addition to their special beer, Urban Farm Fermentary will also offer their seaweed cider, which is available year-round in cans. Maine Mead Works is making a limited edition mead based on one of Cup of Sea's smoky tea blends. And did you know that the barley in Maincraft Distilling's 50 Stone Whiskey is smoked using Maine peat and seaweed? It's probably the secret to its Highlands flavor. And you can also pick up a bottle of Blue Baron Distillery's Sugar Kelp Vodka for your home bar at fine liquor stores. Check the Maine Spirits app for availability. Snack-wise, some of our favorite Maine makers have created unique offerings of some treats that you might not expect could be made with seaweed. And they're all amazing. There's focaccia at Norimoto Bakery. I've tried it, and my kids and I love it. Millcove Baking did a small run of their tasty kelp crackers. Lakin's Gorgeous Cheese just won gold medal and best of class for their rockweed cheese in the soft, ripened, flavored category in the World Champion Cheese Contest. Sweet Tooth will enjoy the Dulce Lemon Chocolate Bonbons from Bixby and Company. And I don't know about you, but I'll be saving room for scoops of Mount Desert Island ice cream and parlor ice cream. Seaweed Week is also the perfect time to try some of the products available year-round that are made by Maine's seaweed industry itself. On the web, check out seaweedweek.org for a complete list of Maine seaweed companies. You can order online from all of them. In person, we'd of course love to have you visit Heritage Seaweed, the specialty shop that I own in Portland. And you can also find many of these products in your neighborhood food co-op or market. Places like New Morning Natural Foods in Kennebunk and Sopo Seafood in South Portland. All right. Lastly, I want to tell you about a few of the cool events we have planned. This year, the first day of Seaweed Week happens to fall on Earth Day. And to celebrate, we're throwing a party at Oxbow Brewing in Portland. You can get your hands on the Saison Aquatic release, check out some seaweed demo tables, and nod along to the DJ. The Seaweed Week kickoff party is Friday, April 22nd. Please join us. Later that weekend, at low tide of course, you should head to Cape Elizabeth for a beach walk and species identification workshop led by Jacqueline Robidoux, the seaweed specialist at University of Maine's Sea Grant program. Jacqueline is also a Seaweed Week 
co-organizer, and I couldn't have done any of this without her. So thanks, Jacqueline. Okay, on Tuesday, April 26, Luke's Lobster on the Portland Pier will host a special event with Atlantic Sea Farms. Based in Biddeford, Atlantic Sea Farms is a women-led company that partners with local kelp farms to make fermented seaweed salads and smoothie cubes. More details to come. Finally, Seaweed Week will end with Cooking with Kelp, a workshop and dinner with Kara Stadler. She's the chef owner of Bow Bow Dumpling House and a co-owner of Canopy Farms in Brunswick, where this event will take place. This one's a ticketed event and sure to be popular, so book now if you want to attend. So there you have it. That's just a taste of what we've got in store for Seaweed Week. Please visit our website, seaweedweek.org, to see all events and their details. And you can also see the full list of restaurants and nightlife destinations, as well as links to other main makers doing amazing things with local seaweed. Check out seaweedweek.org. That's S-E-A-W-E-E-D-W-E-E-K dot O-R-G. Hope to see you out there. That was Josh Rogers of Heritage Seaweed in Portland. And amazingly, we've come to the close of our hour today and our exploration and celebration of all things seaweed on the coast of Maine. Thanks so much to Ellie White for all of her production help, for her stellar interviews with our guests, and for her vision about how we could celebrate Earth Day today by taking a deep dive into the world of seaweed, one of the Maine Coast's most important group of organisms. I also wanted to thank the folks that Ellie interviewed for today's show. Thanks so much to Jacqueline Robidoux of Maine Sea Grant and to Josh Rogers of Heritage Seaweed. I hope all of our listeners have a chance to enjoy some of the great events related to Seaweed Week. You can see a lineup of activities and participating restaurants at www.seaweedweek.org. And happy Earth Day! Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. The Coastal Conversations theme music of Following Sea was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good